Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Acts 16. You might also turn to Galatians 2 and Romans 14. But Acts 16, 1 to 5 is our main text. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, uh, thank you for your inspired and errant word. You guided the human authors to say what you desire and that your word is trustworthy, true, without error, full of veracity, infallible. And Father, you remind us that we are not just to listen to the word, but we are to do it as an act of worship. And so Father, as we look at these texts, let us not just understand what they say, but apply them to our lives that we might be more and more like your son. Guide us, we ask, in the name of Christ. Amen. I don't know if you're a baseball fan. I grew up playing baseball, grew up reading baseball books, love baseball. If you actually come into my office, uh, you'll see a little mat right at my door. It says New York Yankees. You got to step over it. It's sacred ground. <laughs> Just to the left, as you walk in, there's a replica of a jersey for Derek Jeter's 3,000th hit. My office isn't a shrine. Just want you to know. But it does have a little bit of memorabilia for the Yankees. So I love baseball. And if you are a baseball fan, you probably have a favorite player. And you may know that across America, in baseball uh, teams, they have retired certain jersey numbers. Actually, seven, several hundred jersey numbers have been retired in baseball by this team or that team or the other. But there's only one jersey number that has been retired by every team. That's the number 42. You probably know it was a second baseman for the Brooklyn Dodgers. His name is Jackie Robinson. And Jackie Robinson was a very good player. He might even be said to be a great player, but he wasn't the best. The best might be, oh, you're from Wisconsin. It might be Hank Aaron. Or the best might be Mickey Mantle, Joe DiMaggio, Lou Gehring, Babe Ruth, or any number of Yankees. Or, or it could be Steve Foster, I don't know. All of these great players have gone to the Hall of Fame. And Jackie Robinson has Hall of Fame numbers. But they're kind of middle of the road Hall of Fame. They're not the upper echelon. He was an outstanding defender. He was a six-time Major League Baseball All-Star. He was Rookie of the Year in 1946. He was MVP in 1949. He had a very good career batting average of 313. He had a somewhat pedantic number of 141 home runs. He certainly had Hall of Fame numbers, but that's not why his number is retired in every major league ballpark. His number is retired 
because he had the character, he had the courage to break the color barrier. He was a man who knew that he would receive threats against his life, threats against his family, threats against his livelihood if he dared to play in the major leagues. And with that character, with that courage, he broke the color barrier and rightly deserves for his number to be retired in every ballpark. But it just wasn't him. I think of Branch Rickey. Branch Rickey was the general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers. He was a born-again believer. In fact, he helped start Fellowship of Christian Athletes football in New York. He was a vibrant believer who belonged to the Pilgrim Church of Plymouth in Brooklyn. And it was his job to decide, do I dare? Do I dare to break the color barrier with Branch? I mean, with Jackie. So Branch went to church. He went on a weekday. His church happened to be a pulpit that at one time had been filled by Henry Ward Beecher. And that church had been part of the Underground Railroad, part of the abolitionist movement that allowed men and women to flee the South, to come North, to claim their right as free individuals. And so he walked into the pastor's office. He said, Pastor, don't get up. We're not going to talk. I just need to pray and pace. And eyewitnesses said for 45 minutes, Branch went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, praying to God. He finally walked over to the pastor's desk and he slammed his hand on the desk and he said, Pastor, God has told me what to do. I'm going to sign Jackie Robinson. And the day that Jackie was going to run out on the field, a reporter said to Branch, all hell is about to break loose. And Branch replied, but all of heaven will applaud. And right, heaven did. Powerful. That's the road less traveled. Years later, you know that Jackie died premature, age 53, a heart condition. His wife, Rachel, in talking about that event, said it wasn't only her husband's courage, but it was Branch's courage. All three of them, including Rachel, received death threats. All of them were told that they would be maimed, that their houses would be burned. And yet they walked the road less traveled, the road of character and conviction, the road less traveled. And that's what we're going to see in today's text. We're going to see Paul with Barnabas, with Timothy, and even going over to Galatians chapter 2, Titus. We're going to see men who traveled the road less traveled, who walked the road of difficulty, understanding that God did not call Christ followers to a life of ease. He didn't call Christ followers to a life of satisfaction and comfort. He called us to die to ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. He called us to a life of sacrifice, a life of service, to use our time, our treasures, our talents for kingdom pursuits, 
not to just do what is comfortable, but to do what is right. The road less traveled. Let me pick up in our text. I want to read from Acts chapter 16. Let's read verses 1 to 5. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in these places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. That's Acts 15. In Acts 15, Paul goes up to Jerusalem. He meets with the leaders. He says, this is what I'm proclaiming as the gospel. Have I gotten it right? And you remember what the leaders say. The gospel is that God came down in human form, fully God, fully man, lived a perfect life, never sinned, and then paid the penalty of sin, which is death, so that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that through him, through faith in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. And so Jesus went to the cross took our sin, paid the penalty of sin, died, was in the tomb, rose on the third day, conquered death, that if anyone by faith believes in Christ as Savior and Lord, they would be given eternal life. That's the gospel. Paul just wanted to check with the Jerusalem council, and the Jerusalem council said, that's it. You don't have to have a kosher kitchen. You don't have to have the 613 Levitical laws. You don't have to have circumcision. It's faith in Christ alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Sola gratia, in grace alone. Solus Christus, in Christ alone. That is the gospel. Verse five. So with this message, the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Let's kind of set our scene. You remember Paul is going to have three missionary journeys. We've already really kind of looked at one missionary journey earlier in Acts. We're actually in the second missionary journey. That first missionary journey was a long trip. It was AD 46 all the way to AD 49. You remember that Paul gets together with Barnabas. He's Simon, a Levite, who has the name son of encouragement, Barnabas, because he's an encouraging guy. He builds up the body of Christ. And the two of them go out on a missionary journey. And you remember that Barnabas takes either his nephew or cousin. His name is John Mark. We're not really sure the relation because the same Greek word for nephew is the same word for cousin. He could be one or the other. He's a young guy. And they travel. And then they get to the Glacia region, a region known for marauders and known for malaria. And John Mark says, I've had enough of this. I didn't sign up for this. This is too long a trip. This is too dangerous. And he goes home. And Paul and Barnabas finish the church trip, 46 to 49. They take two years off. They minister in the local church. And now we're in AD 51. And they're going out on their second missionary journey from AD 51 to AD 52. And Paul and Barnabas pack up. And all of a sudden, John Mark is in the room. And Paul's like, what is he doing here? I've invited him, said Barnabas. He's the encouraging one, remember? And Paul said, hey, he left, that's on him. 
He leaves the second time, that's on me. He's not going. And Barnabas said, oh yeah, I'm taking him. He's my relation. I, I, I'm discipling him. And Paul said, over my dead body. And you remember that Barnabas and John Mark go in one direction and Paul and Silas, to be joined by Timothy, go into another direction. And that leads us to verse one. And in verse one, we meet a young man named Timothy. I remember it was three years ago. I was preaching the book of Philippians, a book of joy because it was a time period in our history as a nation where joy was lacking. So I thought, let's, let's do Philippians. And so I was introducing Timothy and I was feeling mischievous that particular day. And I said, uh, Paul reminds me of Shrek and Timothy reminds me of Donkey. <laughs> and I'm gonna make a case for that in a moment, but Shrek, he's an older guy, he's cleric, he's kind of set in his ways and you gotta do it his way. And, and then there's Donkey, he's a social butterfly and always getting in trouble, younger. Well, they kind of remind me of Paul and, and Timothy. And I said at that time, some of my coworkers kind of remind me of Shrek and Donkey. Do they remind you of Shrek and Donkey? And so, yeah, thank you, amen. <laughs> and so I said, if you are an artist or a budding artist, bring me a picture the next week and we'll have the 16 on down and over 16. And my staff will pick who's the best Shrek or Donkey and I'll give you a gift card if you win. I'm offering you again. Who on my staff is Shrek, not me? Who is Donkey? Definitely not me. You will be eliminated from the contest if I am in these pictures. Now, several of my pastor friends were Donkey the last time. I'm not even gonna tell you who, because donkeys change. But I want you to make some pictures, young people, older people, give them to me. My staff will evaluate them. Okay, mischievous aside, who is Timothy? Well, verse one says that he's the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And verse three says that his father was a Greek. I think that tells us a lot. It tells us that Timothy is half Jewish. Do you know that even today half Jewish is Jewish? Half Jewish is enough, and because you are half Jewish, you are considered a Jew, and you can actually go to the promised land and, and be a part of their social system. But as a Jew, male, it was required that you were circumcised on the eighth day according to the law or the custom. But for whatever reason, that didn't happen in Timothy's life. We can surmise maybe his father a Greek said, no, my son is not going to be circumcised. I don't know, but he's not circumcised. Whether his father is alive or not, that's debatable. I noticed that in verse 3, the imperfect tense is used, but it really is used earlier in verse 1 as well. That may indicate that his father has died. I don't know. It's possible. But I want to put it all together. This is what I think we have. I think that Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey... AD 46 to 49, they come to the town where Timothy's mother, we know her name is Eunice because of 2 Timothy 1, and his grandmother, we know her name, Lois, they hear Paul preach or Barnabas preach, and they come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. 
and they will eventually lead Timothy to Christ. Paul actually says that he knows the faith of Mother Eunice and Grandmother Lois and a faith which I believe resides in you as well, Timothy. So they have homeschooled him. He has come to Christ somewhere between AD 46 and 49. They have come to Christ. It's a mixed marriage. And if you're in a mixed marriage, you do what Eunice and Lois do. You teach the next generation about Christ. You're not always fighting your spouse. You just teach the next generation about Christ. And so that's what they did. Then Paul comes back into the area. He looks them up and he says, hey, Timothy, I want you to come with me. I want you to be on my next missionary journey. That's clearly what is going on in the text. Now, I find this very interesting because Paul is nothing like Timothy. I actually think I have a case for Shrek and Donkey. Let me go back to what Paul is like. He's my Shrek. He's choleric. He's not a people person. Timothy, by the way, is a people person. Paul has 13 letters and eight or nine of them. Timothy, who's not writing, sends his greetings. He's sanguine. He's a people person. Um, Paul is a scholar. He was educated by Gamaliel, the finest scholar of his day. He was a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee. Timothy has an unbelieving father. He's homeschooled in the Bible by his mother and his grandmother. Paul is kind of gruff. Timothy is sanguine. We have an article from the second century, the Acts of Paul and Thecla, that tell us that Paul is robust. He's a short man in stature, bald, very muscular, very forceful. Timothy, not so much. In fact, the Bible tells us quite a bit about Timothy. Let me read some of the passages. 1 Corinthians 16.10. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. How often does Paul run interference? Like, never. I know going to Corinth is a tough deal. But Paul here is writing in a letter that's going to make its way into Scripture. Hey, when Timothy comes, you know, he's a little bit timid. Take it easy on the boy. Treat him nice. We see the second, same thing in 2 Timothy 1.7. This is a passage just about Paul and his relationship to Timothy. In fact, verse 5, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. Then verse 7, God did not give you a spirit of timidity, but of power. It's in an autobiographical section. Yes, he's talking to us, but very specifically, he's talking to Timothy. Hey, Timothy, man, knock it off. God didn't give you a spirit of timidity. Do you know how many years later this is written? 15. This is 15 years after Acts 16, and Paul is still writing in Holy Scripture. Come on, Timothy. Man, God didn't give you a spirit of timidity. God's got big things in store for you. He gave you a spirit of power. Go after it. <laughs> How about this? 1 Timothy 5, verse 23. This is unparalleled in Scripture. 
No longer, Timothy, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. When did Paul become a nurse or a doctor or PA? Like never. But 15 years after Acts 16, Paul says, hey, he didn't give you a spirit of timidity. And by the way, enough of just that water. You need a little wine. You're always sick, Timothy. So we got Shrek and we got Donkey. One's very different than the other. And yet God called Paul to mentor Timothy for the rest of Paul's life. And that teaches us something. Maybe you're mature in Christ and God's calling you to mentor somebody. Or maybe you're a new believer and you want a mentor. And the natural inclination is to look for somebody with the same interest, somebody who's very much like you, and yet we have this very distinct pairing and it works perfectly. God doesn't call for your mentor to have the same interests as you or I have. And if we're looking to mentor someone, we're looking for somebody who wants to take the next step in the relationship with Christ, who wants to be on point, on fire, not somebody who's haphazard about the things of God, but somebody who's sold out. That's who we invest in. That's who we pour ourselves in. All people matter to God. But you remember several times in Scripture, we are told to wipe the dust off our feet and go to the next village. That is our greatest emphasis in this next generation in discipleship is to find people who want to grow in Christ and pour ourselves into them, even if they don't share our likes, our dislikes, our habits, and the like. So Paul found Timothy. And what a find. Listen to what Paul says about young Timothy. Philippians 2, 20 to 22. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Wouldn't we love that set of us? Probably is said of some of you. They don't live just to serve their own ways, their own needs. They look out for the welfare of others. They're genuine. He lives like a son to a father for me. That was Paul. That was Timothy. That was their discipleship relationship. And so they head out and they go to Lystra. Now, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, but Lystra is filled with Jews. And when they get to Lystra, there must have been a conversation something like this. Paul would have said to the Jew first and then the Gentile. So Paul would have gone over to the synagogue to preach. And I'm thinking that he said something like this to Timothy. While I'm preaching in the synagogue, I want you to make some gospel conversations with people. But it's a city of Jews. And Timothy, a half Jew, is considered a Jew but he doesn't have the sign of circumcision. He doesn't have the covenant from Genesis 17, 14. The Abrahamic covenant is not part of him. And as he has these gospel conversations, nobody will listen. Nobody's interested. And they reject Timothy. And Paul says, Timothy, God didn't call us to a life of ease. 
He called us to a life of ministry. And ministry is messy, and ministry is painful, and ministry is costly. And I know this is humiliating, and I know it's painful. But in order for the sake of the gospel, will you undergo circumcision so that you can have gospel conversations with individuals who won't listen to you because we're in a land filled with Jews? And Timothy acquiesce. He does it. That text I want to compare and contrast with another from the book of Galatians. I'm going to be in Galatians 2, 1 to 5, and as I read Galatians 2, 1 and 5, I want you to know that some people have compared Acts 16 and Galatians 2, and they have wrongly concluded that Paul is inconsistent, Paul is hypocritical, and Paul waffles depending on his audience. They have misunderstood the text. Let me read Galatians 2, 1 to 5. Then after 14 years, probably 14 years after the Damascus Road experience or maybe 14 years of ministry, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus along with me. This, by the way, precedes Acts 16. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. In other words, Paul said, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem. I'm going to make sure I'm teaching correct theology. I'm going to run my theology by the apostles to make sure I got it right. Verse three, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Verse four is so important. Yet because a false brother secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, why wasn't he circumcised? Because of brothers who secretly were brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom from the law, the 613 Levitical laws, Matthew 5, 17, that Jesus fulfilled from us, fulfilled for us. They slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us back into slavery. We have to have kosher kitchens. They want to bring us back to the Levitical law. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Compare the two texts. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul is going places. He's telling people salvation is by faith in Christ alone. And then Jews are coming behind him secretly. We have now called them Judaizers, a name given to them in the 20th century. But what they were are Jews who came behind Paul and said, oh yeah, that stuff is good. Salvation by faith in Christ alone. Plus the Levitical law, and you're going to get into heaven. They're the plus crowd. They're coming behind Paul and saying, that gospel thing is great, plus circumcision, plus kosher kitchen, plus washing your hands the right way, plus the 613 Levitical laws. If you do that, you're going to be saved. They're the plus crowd. And Paul said, Titus isn't getting circumcised. We're going to use them as exhibit A of somebody who believes in Christ, is going to go to heaven outside 
of the Levitical law. We will not bend even a moment. The gospel is at stake. And the plus crowd are always putting the gospel at stake. Salvation by faith in Christ alone, plus communion, plus baptism, plus good works, plus being in the right denomination, plus being in the right church. Do you remember what Paul said about the plus crowd? It's not nice. Galatians 1, 6 to 8, and it's not only Paul because the Spirit is talking through Paul. He said, I'm astonished. I'm astonished that you so quickly desert him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. But not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. Let him go to hell. That's what he wrote. So when Judaizers, the plus crowd, were saying, salvation by faith in Christ alone, plus, Paul said, no way. We are not going to go back to the law. Titus will not be circumcised. In Acts 16, Paul is also defending the gospel. He's saying, you know, there's no Judaizers around here. Nobody's in the plus crowd. They're just not even listening to Timothy. All the barrier that Timothy has is he needs to be circumcised. And then he can preach the gospel. Timothy, God didn't call you to a life of comfort. God didn't call you to say a prayer and do nothing. He called you to a life of service, a life of sacrifice, sometimes a life of pain, sometimes a life of humiliation. Timothy, will you undergo circumcision? And then the Jews will hear the gospel. It's very different. That's the plus crowd. And Paul says, let them be anathema. This is a small insignificant barrier. And Paul says, remove the barrier that you, me, we might preach the gospel and that people might come to Christ. It's actually exactly what happens in Romans 14. Let me read Romans 14, one to five, great passage. As for the one who is weak in faith, that's the legalist, by the way. As for the legalist in faith, welcome him but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. This has nothing to do with a vegetarian, by the way. It's not what's going on. What's going on is uh, you would go to the marketplace, the Agora, and you would buy meat and you'd say, oh man, I don't know. Was that meat earlier in the day in the temple of Jupiter placed before a false god? Uh, might be. Likely. I'm not buying meat. I'm only going to go veg vegetables. And Paul said, man, I'll take two steaks. Uh, three for me, actually. He's not worried. He didn't care where it came from. He wants his beef. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. In other words, this is not a big deal. Don't fight over insignificant things. Don't divide the church. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. 
one person esteems one day as better than another. That is, they're fighting over holidays. You know, I always call Easter Resurrection Sunday. But if you call it Easter, that's okay. In fact, every time I say Resurrection Sunday, I lose 10 people. They don't have any idea what I'm talking about. (laughs) One person esteems one day is better than another. Don't fight over these things. While another esteems all days alike, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. What Paul is saying is this. Don't allow secondary issues to get in the way of the gospel. But we do it all the time. We say things like this. What version of the Bible do you have? Oh, the NIV, the nearly inspired version, huh? Hmm. You know how Western that is? How arrogant that is? 7,000 people groups do not have the Bible, do not even have the gospel. We have all sorts of translations and we actually divide over it. That's not very deep. It's kind of shallow. Or we might say something like this. How do you school your kids? Homeschool, virtual school, public school, private school? And we play Holy Spirit in the life of someone else. Be convinced in your own mind. Follow that. And don't play Holy Spirit in someone else's mind. Or some of you watch The Chosen. And some of you don't. Who cares? Those who watch The Chosen say, hey, it's rich and deep in my faith. Those who don't say, you know, I sometimes confuse watching it with the biblical text and I don't want to be confused, so I just don't want to watch it. Great. Be convinced in your own mind. But don't play Holy Spirit in someone else's. Or the details of the timing of the return of Christ. The Bible actually says only the Father knows, but we fight over it all the time. Don't we? I am utterly convinced in my mind for a pre-trib, pre-millennial point of view. I think it's the best way to understand the scriptures. But if you have your finger on the text and you come to a different timing issue, who cares? We're going to be brothers and sisters. I'm going to beat you to heaven, but we're going to be brothers and sisters (laughs) in the Lord. It's just not an issue to fight over. What the text is saying is this. Make the gospel preeminent. Don't make secondary issues preeminent. If something is in the way of the gospel and you've got to suffer, you've got to sacrifice, well, God didn't call you to a life of comfort anyway. He called you, he called me, he called us to a life of sacrifice. A life of spending ourselves, our time, our treasures, our talents to advance the kingdom. So Timothy gets circumcised. And Titus, they're messing with the gospel. We're never allowing anyone to mess with the gospel. Anyone who messes with the gospel, let them be anathema. We're going to present the gospel. So both texts actually have the same point. The gospel is unchangeable. It's faith in Jesus Christ. Sola fide, sola gracia, solus Christus. Faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. To solely Deo Gloria, to God's glory alone. It's unchangeable. And we shouldn't allow little secondary issues to divide what we're called to do. Believe the gospel. 
and then live out the ramifications of the gospel, which is a life committed to Christ as an act of worship and to share the gospel with others who desperately need it. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I thank you for three texts that really go so well together, hand in hand. Acts 16 and Galatians 2 and Romans 14. I thank you for what you teach me and teach my brothers and sisters in Christ. And Father, if there's someone here that does not know the gospel, has not recognized what we all must admit, that we are sinners and our sin will keep us from you, a holy God. May each person, by faith, confess, agree with you that sin is vile and accept the death of your son, Jesus, as payment of sin, his resurrection, as evidence of life after the grave, and believe in your son as Savior and Lord. And we who have accepted Christ, may we come to the realization that you didn't call us to a life of comfort, but you called us to a life of conviction, a life of courage, a life that takes the road less traveled and spends ourselves to advance the kingdom, to share the gospel and to disciple. Father, allow this to be true in our lives. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.